Have you ever cried out, God, where are you and what are you doing? Have you ever had one of those moments, maybe a long string of those moments? God, where are you and what are you doing? And of course, the hope, the prayer, the faith is, God, if you would show up here, make yourself known and work in this situation, it would fix, fix things, make them right and make us feel better. And scripture tells us this is true. This is a good hope. You might be familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And there's great hope in that. And it it is hope in a context when God's people were struggling and saying, God, what is going to happen? And it is a promise. He will deliver them. He is at work. He has not abandoned them. Now, We also have to understand the larger context of that passage is things are going to be tough for a while, he tells them, but we need to look beyond that. Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It is true that we can trust in God's promises to make things right, to bring comfort in difficult situations. But what I want to focus on this morning is a part of God's work we often want to skip over. We want to ignore or maybe remain ignorant of it. And that is that when God works, the pattern throughout scripture is one of the first results, one of the first impacts of God's work in his people or in the world is repentance. We can't skip over this. We want to get to the feeling good and feeling comfortable and and feeling rescued, but we have to stop and pause this morning on the very difficult topic of repentance. Think about some situations in Scripture. Adam and Eve find themselves in sin. They've rebelled against God, and they hear God walking in the garden. And they don't just waltz up to him. Hey, man, we really screwed up. Uh, We're just trusting in you. They start with trying to hide. They want to cover their sin. They know that there's something wrong there. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Right away, he tells Moses, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. God's presence has an impact on the situation and demands an act of and a response of repentance and recognition among God's people. One of my favorites is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the prophet is given this, this vision where he's brought into the very throne room of God. And he sees God in all his majesty. Things are really rough right now in Israel. Things are falling apart. But he sees this picture of majestic God reigning over all things. And how does he respond? He doesn't dance. He doesn't rejoice. He falls on his face and he cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There's that recognition of sin. And I think as God's people, we need to be careful that we don't neglect this. We're continuing on in this series on Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's a very historical account of something that happened in the nation of Israel. And if we back up to kind of catch you up, remember God calls to this guy Abraham and he says, I'm going to work through you and your offspring. And that's the Israelites. 
They find themselves enslaved in Egypt and he saves them. He brings them out and he establishes a relationship with them. Brings them into the promised land, the nation of Israel. They fall away and are unfaithful. And he warns them time and time again, come back, come back to me, renew your relationship with me, come back or things are about to get really bad. They don't listen. And so he sends them into exile. They lose their homeland. They are forcibly taken from their houses, from their homes and their cities and the promised land of God into exile in these foreign nations. And Ezra and Nehemiah picks up that historical account and it tells us that God is restoring them to the land. He is calling them from being scattered among these nations and bringing them back to their land of Israel that he had promised to give to them. And they are so excited and they are so passionate about getting it right this time. You see them following God's commands throughout the Old Testament and they're purposefully tying into the Exodus and the original conquering of the land to say, let's get it right this time. Let's not make the same mistakes. We went into exile because we made these mistakes. Let's be faithful and obedient this time. And so we see that they are trusting in the work of God. And we covered, and we talked about uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, which originally in the Jewish Bible was one book. So you kind of can read them as one. They go together. And it's divided into three sections. And the first talked about Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple. And we've looked at that already. He takes a group of Israelites back to the nation and they rebuild the temple and reestablish worship to God. Now we fast forwarded it about 50 or 60 years and Ezra comes on the scene and he takes another group back to Israel and they are focused on reestablishing a commitment to the law of God, to God's word and obedience to God's word. And so we began that last week and he goes there and he shows up and things are going pretty well. In fact, that's where we're going to pick up the account this morning as we look at Ezra chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, open up to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra's focus, his passion was to teach the word or the law. They can sometimes use those terms interchangeably to teach what God has told his people. That is his passion. And as we come to Ezra chapter 9, we're going to see that God works through his word to bring repentance. God works through his word to bring repentance. If we pick it up in Ezra chapter 9 verse 1, just the first phrase there, after these things had been done. That's one of those phrases when you see something like that, you have to ask yourself or ask the text, what things? After what things? So we need to go back and review a little bit. Putting some things together, you can understand Ezra's been in Jerusalem now for about four months. Uh, we see this in chapter 7, verse 9. It talks about the first day of the fifth month. And now uh, later in this passage in chapter 10, it's going to talk about the 20th day of the ninth month. Put those together. Ezra's been there roughly four months. And what's he been doing? Well, we know what Ezra's been doing because we know why he went. We see in chapter 7, verse 10, it said, Ezra devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is who Ezra is. It's his burning passion for ministry is to teach people the law of God. Chapter 7, verse 14, he's sent with a letter from the Persian emperor who commands him, this foreign king commands him to go back home and teach the word of God. Isn't that cool? 
And so this is his mission. He says, you are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And we talked about this last week, that he was probably being literally sent back with a copy of the Old Testament law, of which there were very few at this time. A lot had been lost when they went into exile. So he's going to teach them this. Ezra chapter 7, verse 25, And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of the trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. So when we come to Ezra chapter 9, and it says, After these things had been done, the answer to the question, what things, is that Ezra has been teaching the law of the Lord. For four months, day in and day out, that's why he went there. It tells us that what happens in Ezra chapter 9 and Ezra chapter 10 is in response to the faithful teaching of the word of God. And so now we get to look at what impact the word of the Lord has as Ezra's been teaching it. After these things, verse 1, after these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, and their sons have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. The leaders come to Ezra. Remember, what's Ezra been doing? He's been teaching the word, He's been teaching the law. He doesn't go to the leaders and say, hey guys, got something I need to challenge you on. Not that that's wrong. Leaders have to do that from time to time. But it's interesting, that's not what's happening here. They are listening to the law of the Lord and going, "Uh uh-oh. There's something out of whack in our lives. There's something wrong in our lives. The leaders come to Ezra and they confess that not only are the people in sin, but notice what they're saying, even the leaders have sinned. They're coming to Ezra and saying, Ezra, you know, the people have really messed up and we have too. It's personal for them. They're not just tattling or pointing fingers. They're saying the spiritual leaders have gone astray. And they're coming to Ezra. And at the end of verse 2, it says the leaders and the officials, which I would think include some of these people, have led the way in this unfaithfulness. That takes a lot of humility and a lot of wisdom to listen to the word of God and to say there is something in my life that is not obedient to what I'm learning and I need to confess this. Now, we have to ask, and this is a difficult portion, but we need to ask what is the sin and why is it so bad? We need to get this right. The situation that is bringing this up is that these Israelites who have returned to their homeland have begun marrying the foreigners who are living in their homeland. That's the situation. Now, what's the problem with this? 
And again, I, I introduced last week, we need to be very careful with this because this text and others like it throughout Scripture have been used to preach against interracial marriage. It's been used for racist tendencies, and that is not what this passage is about. So we need to get to the center of what's really going on here. We need to understand what was the problem. These people... These people who were not Jewish, who were living in this land that the Jewish people of God are now intermingling with and having marriages with and even having children with, these people and their religious beliefs and practices were cancerous to God's people. It wasn't their race that was the problem, it was their religion. They didn't follow the one true God. In fact, As we study history, the religion of the people in this list that he gives us, some of them required human, usually child, sacrifices as an act of worship. That's how grotesque and awful this is. One of these in particular, they would build a statue out of metal with arms outstretched. And they would build up a fire at the bottom of it and heat up that statue till it glowed. And they would place an infant in its arms. Understand how horrible this is. We read this and so often we want to say, oh, we should be sensitive to all people group. Some of these people were evil, horribly evil. And God's people are saying, oh, it's not that bad. We can get along with them. And they start becoming like the people. That's the problem. They're being led away from their God. Some of these involved worship through flagrant and often grotesque sexual acts. Disgusting, horrible things are going on in this culture. And the law had stated it was forbidden to intermarry with these people because of their religious practices. And because God, our Father, knows those practices will become his people's practices. They will be sucked into it. Now, how do we know? How do we know? Because you might say, okay, Pastor Dave, I get that. And yeah, yeah. But, but, but it does say, you know, don't intermingle. Don't, don't marry these people. How do we know that it wasn't just about race and that the Bible just forbids interracial relationships? How do we know that that's not the situation? Let me introduce you to three people, two women and one really pathetic, horrible man. Okay. And we're going to jump into the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. This is in one of those passages of Scripture you probably haven't read a whole lot. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Not the most inspiring, like, it just blesses you. For about 20 verses it goes on just like this. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so. But every once in a while it hits the pause button and a woman is introduced. And I believe in Matthew every single one of those women was not Jewish. And I know in this verse, two of these women were not Jewish. In fact, both uh, Rahab and Ruth are from the same nations that Ezra is condemning here with intermarriage. Okay? So this helps us to put this into perspective. Let me tell you a little bit about these people. Who was Rahab from the Old Testament? When the Israelites are going into the promised land, they first come up to this heavily fortified city of Jericho. You might know the story of Joshua marching around the walls of Jericho. When those walls fall, there's one little section that doesn't fall. And it's where this woman Rahab lives. 
Because when the Israelites sent spies into the land and the people of the land tried to arrest them, this woman, this Canaanite woman, this Canaanite prostitute woman said, I believe in your God. And she protected those spies. And so she and her whole family were protected when the Israelites conquer their land. Joshua chapter 6 verse 25, the, the, the verse ends, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Not only did she live among the Israelites, she marries one of them. She marries Salmon. Interracial marriage. Now let me ask you, if it was the fact of the interracial marriage that was the sin Why would Matthew say, hey, don't miss this in the lineage of your Savior, Jesus Christ. This woman was one of his great, 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 great grandfathers or grandmothers. He puts that in there so we understand how important this is. Now, who is Ruth? You can look back of Ezra chapter 9 in this list and he lists the Canaanites and we already talked about Rahab. He also lists the Moabites. That's where Ruth is from. Ruth, and we have her story, of course, in the book of Ruth. And it tells us that she was a Moabite woman who leaves her land. She gives up on her family and the gods and goddesses of her land. And she follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, when she returns back to Israel, even though Naomi has nothing to offer her. And one of the most beautiful passages, often quoted at, at weddings, Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Ruth says this, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Friends, the Old Testament does not forbid these marriages between races. What it forbids is the mixing of religions. That is crucial to understand. Because when people like Rahab and Ruth said, I am getting rid of my old life, and I'm following the one true God, they were welcomed into the people of Israel. Let's look at one more. Revelation chapter 2.14 talks about this horrible man, Balaam. Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. This guy is held up as a horrible person throughout Scripture. You might know his story in the Old Testament if you've ever heard of the the talking donkey. That's Balaam's donkey. Balaam is hired by this guy, Balak, who was a, uh, I think he was from the Amorites, if I remember correct. But he was a part of the pagan nations around Israel. And the Israelites are passing through his land. And Balak hires Balaam to curse the Israelites on behalf of God. Because in his mind, if a prophet of the Lord God Almighty declares a curse, then God has to follow through on that, which is utter nonsense. God's going to do what God wants to do. And so he brings Balaam to this cliff overlooking the Israelite encampment, and he commands him and pays him to pronounce a curse. And Balaam's going to do it. He's all in. Sure, easy money. He opens his mouth to pronounce a curse, and what comes out is a blessing. And he's like, what did I just say? And Balak's like, wait a minute, what did you just say? And Balaam's kind of like, I'll try again. And so they go to another place and they try again. I think it's three times he tries to curse the Israelites and three times he pronounces a blessing because God puts words in his mouth. And this is in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. And it's such a beautiful, powerful picture, somewhat hilarious, of God protecting his people. That's at the end of Numbers chapter 24, Balaam cannot curse the Israelites. And then we get to Numbers chapter 25. 
In Numbers 25, 1 through 3 says, while Israel was staying in Shittim. And this is their camp right there. This is where Balak was trying to do this, and it's not working because God's protecting them. While Israel was camped there, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves together, or yoked themselves to the Baal of the Peor, and the, the Lord's anger burned against them. What Balaam could not accomplish through a curse. Sin becomes this cancer in God's people through the sexual immorality and the intimate relationships with these people who were pulling them into their religion. And Revelation pulls back the the curtains of history and says, Balaam failed at tempting God's people And so he tells this king, send in the women, tempt them in sin. And sure enough, it worked. And Balaam over and over and over again in scripture is condemned for what he did and upheld as someone who tempted God's people to sin. Why this is important is to understand in this passage, it is not about race. It is about religion. Religion. When somebody who is a follower of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, gets into a close, intimate relationship with someone whose religious ideas and practices are different, there is a cancerous effect. Let's talk about how to apply this a little bit. We need to be careful. Later on, we'll talk about in the New Testament, it talks about what to do if your spouse is not a believer. And and I'll just give you a heads up. It says stay with them. Okay, so I want to be very careful. But right now, I want to apply this. and, And if there's anyone here who is not married yet, hear me and hear the word of the Lord. Do not marry an unbeliever in Jesus Christ. Do not do it. And you might say, but they're such a good person. That might be. But I love them so much. Absolutely. But they completely, I don't know about that. (laughs) And, And you might think, I can save them. And the truth is, no, you can't. Christ can. And he can use you as an influence in their life. Absolutely. But do not allow your relationship with this person to pull you away from your relationship with God. As Christians, we have given in on this over and over and over again. And it causes damage. Yes, there is grace. Yes, there is healing. Yes, you can go on. Yes, if you're in a relationship right now, there is grace and healing. You can keep going. But I can't skip over the fact that the Bible says, don't do it. Listen to your father, God, who loves you. But we need to go on. Because Ezra now shows us a profound example of repentance. Verses 3 and 4, he says, When I heard this, this is Ezra, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. 
Ezra hits the pause button on everything going on. Remember, they're trying to rebuild, get their lives back in order, their city back in order. And he says, wait a minute, we are in sin. Everybody stop. Now ask yourself, look at how Ezra's responding. Is Ezra guilty of sin? The answer is no. He didn't do anything wrong. This is a profound example of repentance. He is identifying with his people. And because his people are in sin, Ezra himself is coming before the Lord God in repentance. And others who trembled at the words of the God of Israel join him in his sorrow. Do you have such a high view of God and his holiness and his word that when he says something is sin and you see that in your own life, your response is repentance and sorrow and even trembling? The proper attitude of repentance is sorrow. To recognize that we are sinners and to come before a holy God in repentance. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, Then at the evening sacrifice I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. Listen to this prayer. This is such a profound example of repentance. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. He's looking back at Israelite history and saying, God, this is what got us here in the first place. And here we are again. Have you ever had moments like that in your life? I thought I was done with this. You can see that right here in the nation of Israel. Verse 8, but now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. He is proclaiming God has been good to them. In moments of repentance, we need to look at the goodness of God. Too often we say, oh God, this is your fault. Oh God, you allowed this to happen. I wouldn't have done this, but you... No, we need to stop and say, God has been good to me. He has been faithful to me. It's part of taking ownership for our own sin. He goes on, he says, but now our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you have given or you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their iniquity or their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty or a friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. 
Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Listen to how he rehearses who God is and what God has done. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't explain the situation. He comes and says, God, this is what we've done. Here is who you are. We are standing before you, falling on our face. We have no reason to claim your mercy or your grace. We do not deserve it. And yet, he is trusting in God's grace. He knows that God has been gracious in the past. Guys, when when God's word shines a light on our sin... We have to ask ourselves how we're going to respond. There has to be an admission of guilt. This is wrong. I'm trusting God's word when he says this is wrong. There has to be trust in God's grace. God, you are the one to make this right, not me. No arguing, no justifying, no good intentions. Coming before the Lord God Almighty and trusting in his mercy alone. This is a pattern in scripture. When God works, sin is exposed. And when sin is exposed, people must repent. Let's look at what this looks like in Ezra chapter 10 as he puts this into action and they come up with this plan. In verses 1 through 4, the people understand and they confess their sins. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men and women and children, gathered around him. They, too, wept bitterly. The people are watching Ezra as an example. They're recognizing it's their sin and they're starting to gather. Oh God, we repent. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Think for a second again. Did did Ezra stand up and talk to these people? Hey, you're in sin and you need to do this. No, he just preached the word. He showed an attitude of repentance and they are being drawn to that. You want to change people around you? Show them what a follower of Christ does. Show them how a follower of Christ responds to sin, even sin in your own life. People will come. They will be drawn to that. He says, now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. The people repent. The leaders of the people repent. But look at what they're doing. They're saying to Ezra, You take command of this situation. We will trust you and follow you. When you are in a situation captured and stuck in sin, and even having an attitude and response of repentance, you need outside help. You need a brother or sister in Christ to come alongside you. You need somebody that you can go to to say, I'm putting myself in your hands. Help me. Help me in this sin. And they're trusting Ezra to do this. And they are declaring that they will do whatever it takes. 
And we get to the very difficult application in this passage for these people at this time. They knew they had to send these women away. They knew that some of them had had children with these women. And they had to send them away as well. This is hard. You know, so often I talk to people, I can't do that. That would be too hard. Yes, it would. Well, that would uproot my life. It might. I might lose my job. You might. But if God says it's sin, and you agree with him, are you willing to do whatever it takes to turn from that sin and follow God? Repentance is difficult. Verse 5, Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what he had been suggested. And they took the oath, and Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and the elders and would himself be expelled from their assembly of the exiles. So they they make a plan and they bring the people together. And later down in the passage, it says, uh, verse 9, On the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion, because they're in public repentance, and because of the rain. On our calendar, the time that this is taking place is the middle of December. And yes, Israel is... A bit warmer than it is here, but it's probably like upper 40s, mid 50s, and it's raining, and they're uncomfortable, but they've all gathered. Friends, repentance is not comfortable and is not easy. And the people come together in obedience. And then in verses 16 through 17, uh, Ezra lays out this plan. They commit to him that they will do what he says. I'm going to skip through this a little bit. So the exiles did as was proposed. Verse 16, Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. And then there's a long list of each of the family heads that were involved in this. Publicly, it was dealt with. Publicly, it was confessed. Together, they worked on this. For three months, this consumes the people of God to get this right. They are careful and they are deliberate in their acts of repentance. I think, and I want to be careful here, this is Dave Day, human being, putting my opinion on the word of God, so take this with a grain of salt. Well, why did it take three months to meet with each and every one of them? Why? Couldn't they have just said, all of you who married foreign women, send them away? Why? They were meeting individual with each one of these. They were meeting personally with them. Why? And then I take that and say, we have examples throughout Scripture of people who are not a part of God's people, repenting and turning from their ways and becoming part of God's people. And I wonder if the hope there was meeting with these people to bring them into a right relationship with God. It doesn't say it, but that's my hope. 
And that's what I see throughout scripture as that offer of grace. But here we have the end of the second major portion of this book. The second thing that is held up is look at what God is doing. This guy Ezra, isn't his ministry so amazing? And the account ends with this devastation of the people being caught in their sin, having to send wives and children away. And it's kind of a disaster. Now, I said earlier, we need to be careful how we apply this. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul commands a Christian not to leave an unbelieving spouse. So I want to be very careful and put this in a broader context. This was what they were supposed to do in their situation. Things are different today. So if you're here today and you're saying, my spouse is not a Christian, are you telling me the word of God says I need to put them out? No. Okay, please hear that. But the word of God does say that repentance is important when we are caught in sin. There's one more thing we have to look at very quickly Because we ended the last, the first section, where we looked at the rebuilding of the temple and we talked about something is missing. And here we have this renewal of the Word of God and they're trying to be faithful to the Word of God and it kind of ends on this really downer of a note of things not going so well. And it's because something is missing again. They need to come back to God and they're trying to recommit their lives to follow God's law and it should be this joyous moment, but instead it's just greater uncovering of sin. What's missing is that while it's good to return to God's law, it's good to be obedient to God without the grace of Jesus Christ at work in our life. You can't be good enough. Obedience itself is never enough. Nate read this passage earlier because Paul picks this up in the New Testament and he says, look, the law cannot save you for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And in Galatians, he applies this to the law. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. There was something in that nation of Israel that was yet to come. There was something that needed to be dealt with in their hearts that no outward act of obedience could deal with. And Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his father into your heart or our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Our work, our obedience can never save us. No amount of being good enough and doing the appropriate things will ever change us from the inside out. God's greatest work was through his son, Jesus Christ, who saves us from our sins. Grace changes who we are. 
We become no longer a slave, no longer a rebel against God, no longer under his judgment. Grace means that God saves us through his son, makes us his children, promises we will be with him forever and ever, and is at work changing us from the inside out. And all of this is possible because Jesus Christ, the son of God, died on the cross in our place and rose from the grave. Repentance is necessary. God has worked. He is still working. He worked through his son on the cross. But we still have to ask ourselves, how will we respond? Will we just keep going and saying, this is just the way I am? Can't help it. Or will we stop and say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I repent. But understand, as you do this, and you feel over and over again, you keep coming back to that same place, it is very possible something's missing in your life. And that something is Jesus Christ. It's good to try to please God. It's good to be a good person. But understand, you'll never be good enough. And you will live with guilt and shame. It's good to try to get by on your own. It's good to try to work hard and do good things. But it will never be enough. God has worked. He worked in the Old Testament through his people. He's now worked in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. He's offered us salvation. But friends, don't skip the important step of repentance. Our first response to God's work must be a recognition of our sin. And God has given us a profound example of that in Ezra and how he responds. Understand, God has done everything necessary for us to be changed and saved from our sin. Let that work go deep in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, there is no one righteous. We stand before you, each and every one of us, as guilty people. And Father, maybe as I've been talking, there are some here gathered today thinking about sin in their own life. Wondering how to respond. And Father, I pray, teach them about repentance. It's hard. It's not always comfortable. We need to open ourselves up to other people and invite them in to say, help me, I'm struggling. We might have to make hard changes in our life. But Father, repentance is so important as we learn who you are. And we learn about your work and we respond appropriately to it. But God, I also pray that we would have the bigger picture of all of Scripture. That mere obedience is never going to be enough. We need your Son, Jesus Christ. We need a Savior to change us from the inside out. And then, Father, may we walk in that relationship, knowing that when we fail, we can still admit it and repent and turn from it. And sometimes we may need help in that. But to know that we are forgiven through your son, Jesus Christ, is so freeing, so comforting. And I pray that we would live lives reflecting that truth, even in our acts of repentance, that we would be demonstrating the grace that you have demonstrated to us and trusting in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.